Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. I tried to find a passage or a verse talking about Daniel's mother. Couldn't find one. So we're going to look at the last half of verse 26 this morning, and we're almost through the ninth chapter of Daniel. By the time we're through it, Dale tells me down here that we'll have been 10 weeks in the ninth chapter of Daniel. I thought, it's just gone by so quickly, hasn't it? Look with me at verse 26. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Now, last time we saw in verse 26, as we looked at the first half of that verse, we saw that after the 62 sevens, something happens. What happens after the 62 sevens? What does he tell us? What happens? The anointed one will be cut off and he will have what? He has nothing. Absolutely bereft of, of any, any resource, anything. He has nothing. Now, most scholars would agree that the anointed one referred to in that verse is Jesus Christ, who was indeed cut off by his violent, brutal death on the cross of Calvary. Now, if you look at the verse closely, verse, six, verse 26 closely, the anointed one will still be alive at the end of the 69th seven. Do you see that? He'll still be alive. But he will be cut off or he will die after the 69th seven. Are you with me? Now, someone asked me today, well, what, what difference does this make? I know Jesus died. It makes a tremendous amount of difference in this sense. When we study these verses and we look at these prophecies, if in fact they are prophecies, and I'm committed to that proposition, I believe that the book of Daniel is a prophetic book. It is God telling what he has ordained for the future for the Jews and for Jerusalem and for Israel and for the temple, for that matter. If, in fact, it is prophecy, and we read it, and we can see that prophecy actually have been fulfilled, then that ought to give us some comfort and confidence and hope that there is a God in heaven who knows what's going on, who's in charge. He's in control. So when I read these things, and I look at my own life, and I'm, I'm, I'm concerned and worried and can be fretful about the future and the uncertainty and I, and I see the economy really wobbly and I see the world wobbly and, you know, and I'm thinking, oh man, what's going to happen? I, I, I can relax. I can rest. I can say, Lord, you are sovereign. You're in control. You know what you're doing. 
And just like he says here, that desolations have been decreed. It's not only for Israel. Desolations have been decreed. I'm seeing it right before my eyes. But I don't have to worry and fret. And that frees me up to be much more invested in the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of this world because I'm invested in the kingdom of this world. I'm going to lose it all because that's where my focus is, right? We put our treasure where our heart is, don't we? And if I realize that God is working his plan and purpose in bringing all things to a culmination, and I'm confident because I see it again and again and again in the scriptures. Now, there are, there, are, there are scholars, learned people, who look at the book of Daniel as being history written after the fact. In other words, it's not prophecy. There, there's a, there's a, there was a writer, and he's identified as pseudo-Daniel. He's not a real, not, wasn't a real Daniel. But he's, he's looking back at history and, and seeing all these events from... Babylon through Persia and so forth. And he's writing down all this stuff and recording it and, and, and passing it off as prophecy when in fact it was not. I don't take that position. I believe that it is prophecy. I believe that God is telling Daniel through the angel Gabriel what is about to happen in the next generations. So it's imperative for us to have, have a clear understanding uh, of, of what prophecy is, why it's there, and because it does affect our life in our everyday um, experience. Does that make sense to you? This is, if you will, I think one of the most important events in the prophetic unfoldment of God's plan for Israel and ultimately the world. Uh, Because what goes on in Israel, what goes on with Jerusalem, is key to what goes on in the world. I mean, after all, uh, what one city uh, today do we see uh, the whole world focus on Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. It's not L.A. <laughs> I live in L.A. It's not New York. As glorious as one of people want to make New York, in San Francisco. <laughs> Come on. No. It's not London. It's not Paris. It's not Moscow. It's not Beijing. It's Jerusalem. God's plan and purpose and working with the Jews, and, and however you want to look at them theologically, whatever your, your, your view is about Israel, they still are key. And so the events that unfold here in Daniel are absolutely, absolutely some of the most important, if not the most important. The cutting off of the anointed one the death of Jesus Christ would provide then the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. And Daniel has outlined God's purposes in verse 24. Just look back with me real quickly. If Jesus did not die on that cross, if he did not come, if he is not God in the flesh, then we have no assurance whatsoever that these things would be fulfilled. These things would be accomplished. Look at verse 24. Seventy sevens, he says, or 490 years, are decreed for your people and your holy city. So the angel is telling Daniel, he's saying specifically, here is my agenda for your people. 
the Jews, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. And what goes on there and what goes on with your people is going to affect all the world. He says, to finish transgression. We talked about that, and and we we said that, that transgression really is rebellion, revolt. The Bible says if Christ did not die on that cross, we would continually be in revolt. Were we rebels? Absolutely. Are all people rebels? Yeah. To put an end to sin. To atone for wickedness. To bring in everlasting righteousness. How many can hardly wait for that? And I submit to you, unless all of these events have been fulfilled, uh, we would not have that hope of everlasting righteousness. To seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So all of those six dynamics encompass completely and totally God's plan, his purpose for Daniel's people and for the holy city of Jerusalem. Now go back to verse 26. The next two sentences in verse 26 tell us what's to happen next. First of all, the anointed one has to be cut off. And he'll have nothing. And then there's some more things that happen. After the cutting off, we're told next, the people of a ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now remember, at the end end of the 69th seven, you've got seven sevens. Those seven sevens were devoted to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. 49 years it took. You have the second section of those sevens, or those weeks of years, 62. You combine the seven and the 62, you have 69 sevens, or 483 years. And then you have a final week of years, one sevens worth. That's in verse 27. We're going to look at that next time. But we're going to allude to it this morning. The point I want to make is that after the cutting off, there is going to be something else happens. A ruler, the people of a ruler who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What city, and what city is going to be destroyed? Jerusalem. What sanctuary is going to be destroyed? The temple. Now, from the standpoint of history, all we have to do is look back in history. And we can see a clear reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and to the destruction of the temple under the Roman Emperor Titus in the year A.D. 70. This is historical fact. Gabriel is telling Daniel at the end of the 69th seven, the anointed one's going to be cut off. We already saw that that probably was Jesus. He seems to fulfill that. And then secondly, that uh, the holy city would be destroyed. It was in the year A.D. 70 that the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary of the temple were completely, utterly destroyed. Uh, history tells us that the temple in Jesus' own testimony in Matthew chapter 24, he said the temple would be destroyed. Not one stone would remain on another. The Romans tore it down. 
And part of the reason they did it was not just to be mean, but because the, the, the interior walls were overlaid with gold. And so they, would, they wanted the gold. And so uh, they tore the, the building down uh, just to get it all the gold in the crevices. So the building was absolutely destroyed. The closing portion of verse 26, although not entirely clear, indicates that the destruction of the city will be like the destruction of a flood, that desolations are sovereignly determined along with war to the end. So there's going to be a flood that's going to overrun the city. This is, war is going to continue. Desolations are decreed to the end. In fact, if you look back at verse 26, that phrase, the end, is mentioned twice. We read, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Do you see that? Twice that phrase is mentioned. I point that out because sometimes people just read the end and they think that automatically means the end of all time, cons- the consummation of all time, or the second coming of Christ. I want to suggest to you, if you understand and you read the context, it, both of those phrases represent the end of Jerusalem. This is the end of Jerusalem. Desolations God has decreed for Jerusalem. You think, why would God do that? Why indeed? We've already seen that they've been 70 years in captivity, right? Why have they been 70 years in captivity? Because they're disobedience. And they are continuing to walk in disbelief and disobedience. Now, the expression of an overwhelming flood seems to be, I think, a general reference to the fact that from the destruction of the city in in the year A.D. 70, trouble, war, and desolation will be the normal experience of the Jews. And all you have to do is look through history. And have we seen trouble and war and destruction and desolation characterizing those people? Absolutely. History has corroborated, I think, this prophecy For not only was Jerusalem destroyed, but the entire civilization of the Jews in Palestine ceased to exist soon after the end of the 69th 7. And that desolation has continued to this present day. Even though Israel has come back into the land, and and you can debate and argue, you know, uh, what is this... God's plan, is this fulfillment of prophecy or not? We're not going to get into that at this juncture. But the point is, they're there. And if there's a sovereign God on the throne, God has ordained that they be there. But nonetheless, they're still experiencing what? War, aren't they? Tribulation, suffering. Tragic. The prophesied events of verse 26, just like the events of verse 25, have already been fulfilled. And because they've already been fulfilled, I want to submit to you that they constitute clear evidence of the accuracy of God's prophetic word. God's word is right on. These things are amazing. This is not like Nostradamus or some of the other psychics and people who prophesy the future. 
This, the detail is amazing. The timing is uh, terrific. Now, there is some disagreement amongst scholars as to whether the events described here, as we've just been looking at them, as to whether they come in the 70th seven, described in the next verse, or whether these events occur in an interim period between the 69th seven and the 70th seven. All right, so let's, let's go back and rehearse now. Seven sevens, 62 sevens, and one seven. Are we all on the same page? All right. What happened in the first, first seven sevens? Rebuilding of Jerusalem. First 49 years. What happens at the culmination of the 62-7 period? The anointed one is cut off. He has nothing. The last period, the last seven sevens, or the week of years, is in verse 27, and we're going to look at that. But by, I want to just, just suggest to you some things here that are very, very important for our consideration. Two theories have emerged. The first one is called the continuous fulfillment theory or the fulfilled interpretation. That view holds simply that the 70th seven, or the last week of years, immediately follows the 69th seven. So just like you had the first seven weeks of years, the first seven sevens, then the 62 followed right on after that, right? So it's logical then to think, well, if, if the 62 sevens followed immediately after the seven sevens, then wouldn't it make sense for the last seven to follow directly after the 69th? Does that make sense? So logic would seem to dictate that they follow, the last seven follow. Now, if that's true, then the 70th seven would immediately follow the 69th seven. The second theory that has arisen is called the gap theory or the futurist interpretation. And this view holds that there is a period of time between the end of the 69th seven and the 70th seven. Now, if, if fulfillment is continuous, in other words, if the first theory holds, then the 70th week is already history. Does that make sense? If we go with the first theory, then the 70th week is already history. It's all happened already. If there, however, is a gap, if there's a, a parenthesis in time, if you will, a, a period of, of time between the end of the 69th week and the 70th, then possibly the 70th week is still future. It hasn't happened yet. Now, there's many, many fine scholars on both sides of this issue. I believe, however, that in the interpretation of this passage and the decision on the question, do we go with the continuous filament, do we go with the gap theory, on that question to resolve it, 
the fulfillment of the prophecy gives us insight and understanding. Do we want insight and understanding? All right, let me try to share with you what I think. If you go back to verse 26, the center part of that verse, this statement, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, historically, the destruction of Jerusalem occurred in what year? 70 A.D. Almost 40 years after the death of Christ. That's key. Those who hold to the continuous fulfillment theory believe that the sacrifices are caused to cease by Christ in his death on that cross, which they consider to be fulfilled in the middle of the last seven years. Just look quickly quickly with me at verse 27. We're just going to preview it. Verse 27 starts with the word, the pronoun he, right? So the question is, who is he? According to a grammatical principle, a pronoun always have to, has to have an antecedent. It has to refer back. So the question is, who does he refer back to in the previous verse or verses? Well, we don't know that. You know that if you take the, the, the continuous fulfillment, people say it refers back to the anointed one, the ruler. Now, here's the fault of the logic of their thinking. He will confirm a what? Covenant. Now, we know about the new covenant, right? So the thinking is he would confirm a covenant, notice this, with many for one seven. But in the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and what? Offering. Now, we know that Jesus' death on the cross was the one last final sacrifice, right? So there is no need for sacrifices. So from that perspective, you could understand how people would look and say, he, must mean the anointed one, died on the cross, instituted a new covenant, and then by his death put an end to sacrifice. So by that, then... The 70th seven, because all this happens when? In the 70th seven. So then, the, therefore, the 70th seven must follow immediately after the 69th. Because when did Jesus die? After the 69th. So you can see how they would collapse them. How there's. The, on the surface of it, it would seem to be, if you take that interpretation, it would seem to be there's no gap. However, this does not, this interpretation does not provide in any way for a literal fulfillment of the events 40 years later. The destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, after the end of the 69-7, doesn't provide for that. We know that Jesus died. Let me back up. We know that Jesus came to Bethany the week of the Passover, the year 32 AD. Right? And we knew he ministered for three years. 
we're told in the, in the, in the, in the Gospels that, that he, his ministry began the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, that Tiberius uh, came in the year, his, his reign started 14, in the year 14, so that's 29 years. His, Jesus' ministry lasted three years. That brings us to the year 32. So we know he comes to Bethany the week of Passover, anticipating Passover in Jerusalem, the year A.D. 32. He has the Passover meal Friday night. The next day is the Sabbath. He rests. The following day is Sunday. What does he do on Sunday? He enters into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna, it's his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? This is the timetable. We calculated the number of days exactly from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. It was 173,880 days. Recall that? So the timetable fits. Now, if Jesus dies, if he's crucified just a few days after he enters Jerusalem, how could he have been killed three and a half years after that event? Do you follow? The middle of the seventh week? So I'm going to suggest to you that the 70th week does not follow immediately after the 69th week. Even though he is cut off after the 69th week, we still have to deal with the destruction of the temple and destruction of the city of Jerusalem, which were still standing when he died. Are you tracking with me on this? I think that's the flaw of that particular theory. You see, the intervention of two events after the 697, which in their historic fulfillment occupied almost 40 years, makes necessary a gap between the 69-7 and the 70-7 of at least, we don't know how, how much time, but there is a gap. Those referred to as the people of the ruler who will come are obviously the Romans, and in no sense do those people belong to the anointed one, the ruler. Because he's what? He's dead. Or he's actually in heaven. There are two rulers identified in verses 25 and 26. The anointed one, verse 25 and 26. And then the ruler who will come. And I submit to you the ruler who will come in verse 26 related to the Roman people, would be Titus, the emperor Titus. Now, the very last statement to verse 26. Are you tracking with me okay? A lot of you are, some of you are lost. Margie, are you okay? I can see you scratching your head back there. All right. Ulrich will help you. He's got this stuff wired. The last statement of verse 26. The end will come like a flood... War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. This sounds, I think, strangely similar, wonderfully similar 
to Jesus' own prediction in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. If you read Matthew chapter 24, we're not going to go there this morning. We'll, we'll go there another time. But in that passage, Jesus states that hardships, suffering, and war would continue right up to the end of the present age, culminating in a time of unparalleled tribulation. I think it important to note that this entire intervening period is referred to before the final seventh week is presented in verse 27. Verse 27, the final week, is out here. All this stuff is referred to before we get to verse 27, which tells us what happens in the final week. You with me? I know for some this is very complicated. I'm trying to make it as simple as I know how. I'm, 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 I've been confused about it. I'm trying to work it through and take you with me. Now, it is difficult to explain this gap if, in point of fact, the entire 70 weeks are intended to run consecutively and without interruption, how do you have all this going on at the end of the 69th, 7th, before the last week is even talked about in verse 27? It doesn't make sense. Unless there's a different interpretation to take. It seems to me uh, to be far more reasonable to infer that a long period of time, and we don't know how long, a long period of time of war and desolation is to intervene between the 69th week when Christ first came and the 70th week which will usher in his second coming. There is a gap of time, I submit to you, between the two. The prophecy of verse 25 dealing as it does with the restoration of Jerusalem in the period of the first seven years, and then the 62 sevens, which follow, they culminate in the anointed one being cut off. And then in verse 26, the prediction that the anointed one, again, will be cut off, Jerusalem destroyed. These verses, I think, give the high points of Israel's history and provide the key to understanding this very difficult prophecy. Now, in contrast to what I think is a rather clear fulfillment of verses 25 and 26, verse 27 is an enigma as far as history is concerned. Verse 27 is just absolutely a puzzlement. And we're going to begin to, dis to explore verse 27 next time. We may be a couple of weeks in verse 27. We may go beyond 10 weeks, you know. But as we anticipate verse 27, and if in fact we are living today in that gap between the end of the 69th and the 70th, if we are standing in the gap, if we are to occupy until he comes, 
If we're to, to hold ground, if we're to take ground, if we're to uh, make him known during these intervening periods, the question then becomes, how shall we live? What responsibility do you and I have beyond simply sitting down and waiting? Do we have a responsibility as we stand in the gap? May I submit to you three critical dynamics for our lives. The first one, separation. Separation. What's the first one? Separation. Doesn't mean that you can separate from a spouse that you're mad at. Separation from all things that are unlike God in this world in which we live. That means that you and I as Christians must make decisions. Though we live in this world, the Bible tells us that we should not be what? Of this world. We have a new loyalty, don't we? New allegiances. Before you became a Christian, you had a bent, a natural bent away from God. Now that you become a Christian, you have now a brand new supernatural bent towards God. God has given you a new nature, a new heart. He's changed you. He's opened your eyes. You're going, aha, aha. But now a battle begins, doesn't it? What's the battle? The flesh and the spirit. What does the flesh want? This world. And the things of this world. The spirit wants what? Things of God. And so we have a battle. We have a struggle. Romans chapter 7 talks about it. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the warfare that goes on between the spirit and the flesh. The challenge for us is to plant both feet firmly in the kingdom of heaven and not just live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of heaven, you're dead in the water. You're double-minded. And we all know what that's like, don't we? Until you make a decision, say, no, I'm separating. I'm separating from those things that would keep me captive and would keep me from enjoying more fully and participating more fully in the kingdom of God. Every single one of us as Christians must come to these points of decision every day in our life. It's not just like a once-for-all decision. Well, you know, I'm a Christian, that's it. I'm so, no, no, you've got to reaffirm that decision. It's like you've got to get saved every day. I am saved, but I'm being saved. And I will be saved. And I have to stay active in that process of separating myself from everything in this world, in this life, in this existence that is against God. Look at Exodus chapter 23, verse 2. Do not follow the crowd <laughs> in wrongdoing. There is a single one of us growing up as kids and maybe even as Still following the crowd. Isn't that true? 
We just, we, we, we want to be accepted. I want to be liked, and so the natural tendency is to, to I don't want people to be mad at me, I don't want people to yell at me, I don't want people, I don't want to be isolated, I want people to like me, so therefore I end up following the crowd. But the minute you take a stand, you're marked, aren't you? Now, you don't take a stand arrogantly or pridefully. You just simply take a stand because it's right. I don't do that. I don't participate in the gossip at work or in the church. There are things that you just don't do. Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or in the seat of mockers. He what? He's blessed because he separates himself from the things he used to participate in. Proverbs 4.14, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Proverbs 24.1, do not envy wicked men. Do not desire their company even. Isaiah 52, verse 11. Isaiah, listen to Isaiah's strong word. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be what? Pure. Does that sound like separate yourself? The book of Numbers has a passage I want to read to you. This is God's instruction to Moses for the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. Now, that's a historical event. They did enter in the promised land, and they wandered for 40 years. We we understand all that from the history, if you've read all that and you know about it. But also, it's a, all that history is also a metaphor for our spiritual life. When you get saved, you enter into the promised land, don't you? Now listen to what he says. Numbers chapter 33, verse 15. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from the Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, when you enter in, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Now what might, for us, what might the inhabitants of the land that need to be driven out, what might those things be? Yeah, our habits. The stuff that our flesh gives way to. You enter the land, get rid of that stuff. Don't don't let the baggage that you carried all your life go with you in the kingdom. And that can be myriads of things, can't it? What habits, what tendencies, what proclivities, what, what little... Things did you like and enjoy in that need to be driven out? Look at the language. Drive them out. It's a strong language. And we understand, all of us who have been in that battle, we understand how we have to drive these things out. It's not a matter of just, well, okay. You can't just passively sit with them. He says, destroy all their carved images. In other words, get the stuff out of your mind. Destroy all the carved images and the cast idols. Demolish all the high places. All all the idolatries that you've carried with you. Understand this idolatry. No more. 
Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. I love that. I've given you a whole new life to embrace and to enjoy. But you're not going to embrace it, you're not going to enjoy it, unless and until you get rid of the inhabitants of the land. Drop down with me to verse 55. He says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain, who allows them? We do. The stuff that you allow to remain in your life will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. How many would like a barb in their eye? Constantly bothering them. A thorn in your side? No. He says that's what they'll become. And they will give you trouble in the land where you live. I talk to people all the time. Pastor, I've got this trouble. I've got this anger problem. I've got this unforgiveness problem. I've got this, I've got that. I've got this problem with pornography. I've got this problem with masturbation. I've got this problem with... It just goes on and on and on. Get rid of it! Well, don't I need therapy? <laughs> no, you just need to have the courage the courage and the commitment to say no. What part of no do you not understand? Am I making sense? If you are a born-again Christian, you have the power of God resident in you. And only if you will can you say no. Can you get this stuff out of your life? I need therapy. I'm going to get in trouble for that, I know. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. All of us have come out of the world, right? We've all come from lives of sin and brokenness and all the grief and stuff that's happened to us and we've done and all that stuff. So we all come into the church and we come in and unwittingly we bring baggage with us, don't we? But now it's a process of learning to drive this stuff out, get rid of this baggage, throw it away. It's useless. It only hinders me. Very often, people will come into church, couples, young couples, they get saved, or one of them will get saved, the other one will come with them and get saved. And, 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 what, and they're not married, they're, but they're, they're cohabitating, they're living together. And... I've found over the years that as I discover that, I don't really ever have to say anything to them. Now, you would think, hammer them, you know, tell them they shouldn't be living together. No, no, no. You know what? I just watch. Almost invariably, if they're serious Christians, and if they're reading their Bible, and if they're listening, at some point, they'll come and they say, you know, 
um, Pastor, we we were we were thinking we we've been living together, and we we think probably we shouldn't be. I said, very good. My trust, my hope, my confidence is in the Holy Spirit speaking to them if, in fact, they're Christians. And it works almost every single time. And people just come to that conclusion. You know, I, I'm not going to have to do with deeds of darkness anymore. I want to live my life for Christ. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And yet we're taught to conform to the pattern of this world, aren't we? Our whole life. Fit in. Fit in. Go along. Don't upset the apple cart. Don't be different. Get along. We're told all those things. And all of a sudden you become a Christian. You go, well, wait a minute. The pattern of this world is ultimately what? It's destructive. It's taking people down. How many loved the pattern of this world? Loved it. Worked hard for it. (laughs) Success for the sake of success. Success, success, success. Have it all. Get all the toys. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Oh, come on. That's just what it says. Do not love the world or anything in the, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't tell me you love the Father if you love the world. Yeah, but I, I, I feel, I feel love for the Father. I don't care what you feel. What you feel doesn't matter to me. What's the truth? The truth is the word of God says the love of the Father is not in you because you love the world. How many before you became Christians loved sin? Every hand better go up. We love sin. We love the world. Come on. I didn't love sin. Yes, you did. (laughs) And because you love the world, you love sin. The love of the Father was not. You didn't love God. You may have romanticized God. You may have romanticized a relationship with God. You may have said, oh, I love God. No, you didn't. How can you say that? Because the word of God says it. It's that simple. This is in James 4.4. 4. Friendship with the world is what? Hatred towards God. There it is, again. Friendship toward the world is hatred towards God. He said, but yeah, but I have to live in the world. Yes, you do. But you don't have to go the way of the world. You don't have to buy into the value system of the world anymore. You don't have to bow to the world anymore. You uh, stopped. No further do I go. I'm taking a stand right here. This is it. I want to find out what God wants. If you don't know, read your book. Find out what he wants, then do it. 
separate yourself. Separate yourself. You want to know what the second one is? Are you sure? <laughs> Fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with God, which will enable us, and listen to what I'm saying, which will enable us to declare him to the age in which we live so that it shall be compelled to acknowledge him. Is the age in which we live compelled to acknowledge him? No, why? Why is it, do you think, that the age in which we live is not compelled to acknowledge the one true God? Because his people, called by his name, have not separated themselves, and therefore they are not in fellowship with him. Do you know that the church is losing? The church is losing the war. It's losing the battle. We're losing the war. If we were winning the war, what would we see? We'd see churches packed. Why don't you look around and see how many empty chairs are in this room? If we were winning the war, the churches would be packed. Our culture would be marked. Christianity would not be mocked. People would stand up and take notice. You'd walk into a room as a Christian who has separated him or herself from this world. You've taken a stand that has given you now the capacity as well as the ability to be in fellowship with God in such a way that your life, your very presence makes a difference. You walk into a room, people take note. You don't even have to open your mouth. Why? Because the presence of God is there. Not someone who's compromising. Not someone who's going, well, you know, I don't know, it's so hard. I'm just going to go this far, no farther. <laughs> it's too hard to go that next step. I don't want to spend any more time in church. I mean, my gosh, they have two-hour services. <laughs> and sometimes he goes longer than two hours. <laughs> Should we be making a difference? If we are standing in the gap, we should be standing powerfully. Not in our own strength. Not in, not in, 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 in prideful arrogance. Standing humbly, but in the power of God. And we're doing, we can do that because we have decided to have done with this things of this world. We're making decisions to separate ourselves. If I don't separate myself, if I have other women in my life, can I devote myself to a full fellowship to my wife? The only other woman in my life is my secretary, Debbie. 
And they know each other and they have a great relationship. And we have an agreement there. If I'm embracing things that I cannot have the kind of fellowship with God that I desire and want to, and he wants me to have. You have to ask yourself a question. Do I have a relationship with God? Do I have fellowship with God name only? Or is that fellowship growing deeper and richer? Is my life being changed more and more and more because of who I'm hanging with? Or am I just like the world? Right, Tui? Listen to Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. I love this. Enoch walked with God. Ooh! Tui walked with God. Dale walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. Swept him up. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Blameless. Here's Noah. How many remember the, the old Bill Cosby thing about Noah? Noah. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> the Lord. God speaks to Noah. And he says, I want you to build a boat. Why? It's going to rain. What's rain? It had never rained on the earth. Noah didn't know what rain was. It's going to rain a whole bunch. There's going to be a flood. You need a boat. Noah believes God. Builds the ark. Look at this. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Put yourself in Noah's place. You're building a boat in your backyard. A big boat. People are going, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. Why? It's going to rain. What's rain? You'll find out. (laughs) He builds this boat. Do you suppose that Noah experienced opposition? Ridicule? Do you think that his kids helping him build the boat experienced that too? Dad, Dad, the kids on the neighbor want me to come play with them. They want to know why we're building this boat. Tell them it's going to rain. (laughs) Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. He made a choice against all odds, against everything he knew, he made a choice. He put his life on the line with God against all of his culture. Micah chapter 4, verse 5. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Who are you going to walk in fellowship with? 
Joshua told the people before they entered the land, he said, you choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. See, it's it just every day. It comes down to a decision every day. We'd like to think it's a once-for-all decision, but no. You make a decision, but you rehearse that decision every single day. Who am I living my life for today? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near to God. James 4, 8. Come near to God, He'll come near to you. But you've got to wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Otherwise, you won't come near to God. Psalm 73, verse 28, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. You have to ask yourself, do I have a testimony? The testimony is not about me. It's about God and all his deeds. I will tell of all your deeds. I will not tell of his deeds unless I've separated myself and I've been in fellowship with him so much so that I want to talk about him. I want to talk about him to everybody. Do you have a testimony? A number of you know I go to the Spectrum gym. Almost everybody there knows I'm a pastor, right, Ron? And though some guys will just kind of needle me a little bit. I've had guys come up to tell me, say, you know, I, I don't believe like you believe, but I watch you. And I respect you. I try to live my life publicly as a testimony. Do you have a testimony? Do people look at your life? Do you, do you know God in such a way, you have a you fellowship with God in such a way that your life is a testimony? Here's the third component, adoration. Such adoration of him that must, now note this please, that must express itself in worship sometimes. Always, always. In spite of the difficulties. And this worship refuses to bow the knee to any God except the one Lord God Almighty as he has been revealed to us in the person of, guess who? Jesus Christ. In spite of all, all difficulties. Is my life lived as an expression of worship? First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. And do so only when you feel good. Oh, that's not in there. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. How often is that? All the time. Bring an offering and come before him. How can you come before the Lord and not bring your offering? There are people in our church who come to church and they don't bring an offering. They don't, they don't say, God, we acknowledge you. I want to bring my offering. Ascribe glory, the glory that's due your name. Bring an offering. 
Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. In other words, let us humble ourselves before Him. Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 17. I, I, like, I like this verse. Zechariah, the prophecy is, is for later on, but I think the principle holds. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. <laughs> Whoa. People are going to starve. They're going to die. They're going to suffer deprivation. Why? Because they're, they're not acknowledging Him. Romans 12.1 Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers, to offer what? Your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Oh, man, if I do that, if I, if I really go for this, oh, I just know God's going to make me be a missionary. I'm going to have to live in some aboriginal jungle someplace eating bugs. <laughs> Offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Notice this, please. Which is your spiritual what? Worship. In other words, my whole life is to be an expression of worship. Offer my body, everything that I am. That's part of our challenge. But if I'm not being done with the world, and if I'm not learning to separate myself, I won't have fellowship with Him. And if I'm not going to have fellowship with Him, I'm not going to worship Him this way. Does that make sense? Listen to uh, Psalm 146. I love this. Verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Wow. Does that not sound like somebody who really just, God, just praise you every single day? I can hardly wait to wake up in the morning so I can praise you. Praise you throughout the day. Acknowledge you in all my ways. (coughs) Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. And then Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with tambourines and dancing. Praise Him with the strings and flute. Praise Him with a clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, I just don't feel like it. (laughs) Ascribe to the Lord the glory, the praise due His name. Do it. Well, I, I, just, I just can't get up. Well, you can't get up because you're still so invested over here. 
Start praying. Start saying, God, show me. Show me the things that still have a hold on my life and give me the strength and the courage. Help me to get rid of that stuff so that I can enjoy fellowship with you more fully, so that I can ascribe glory and praise to you all the time. Not that complicated, is it? I want to submit to you that Daniel... Daniel lived in the midst of things contrary to the will of God, smack in the middle of Babylonian and Persian idolatry. Daniel lived well into his 80s. He rose up high in three different administrations of government in the ancient Near East. He lived smack in the middle of everything that was contrary to God. But guess what? He lived separate from them. He lived separate from them. He lived in such close fellowship with God that it was possible for him to receive the interpretation of visions. We have in chapter 6 just that one little passage that says that he, he went to his room, as was his custom, and bowed down facing Jerusalem three times a day. He knew knew where his help was. He knew where his hope was. He knew who he was dependent on. He left the office. He came to pray. He prayed in the morning. He prayed midday. And he prayed in the evening when he got home. And no doubt he prayed throughout the day. But his closeness to God, his fellowship with God, was the very thing that allowed him to receive insight and understanding to interpret the visions. You want to know God's word? Draw close to him. And he'll reveal things to you. He'll show things to you. You'll go, I never saw that. Wow. And you'll be so thrilled. You want to tell people. Let me tell you what I learned. And he lived in such reverent, adoring worship as to be unhindered, by any form of opposition. He lived to a ripe old age, served several administrations, declared God's truth. Was there opposition against his life? Oh, yeah, I remember. They threw him in the lion's den. Nothing could touch him. Why? He separated himself. He sought fellowship with Father and worshiped him. Beloved, you and I are standing in the gap. That's what we're called to do. Separate yourself. Pray. Go to mini church this week. What do I need to separate ourselves? Talk about it. Talk about it. Commit. Make a commitment. Be accountable to somebody. Be open, maybe for the first time in your life, with your secret sins. Confess those things. Doesn't matter what people think. Matters what God thinks. Make yourself accountable. As you separate yourself, you have greater and greater opportunity then to, to enjoy fellowship with the Father. And you find yourself more and more taken with Him, more and more acknowledging Him, more and more worshiping Him. And maybe we'll be some earthly good. Amen? Father, thank you again. We do, we do look to you this morning, and Father, we look into your word and 
We thank you that your spirit guides us and instructs us. Help us, O God, if we are in fact living in the gap to live in a manner pleasing to you. It takes courage and strength, Lord. We, We acknowledge that to separate ourselves from the things that we've grown comfortable with that ought not to be in our life. And to embrace things that ought to be in our life more fully. And only then can we enjoy fellowship with you truly. And ascribe to you the worship that is due you. God, again, we continue to come before you, humble ourselves this morning. We pray and ask, God, for your continual grace and mercy and strength for us. Help us, O God, to embrace these things. Indeed, to come more fully towards you. We love you this morning. We pray those words are real in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, tell your neighbor one thing you learned this morning. One thing you learned this morning that's helpful for you. Secondly, pronounce a blessing on your neighbor. Thirdly, if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing his praises one more time before we dismiss.